Close your eyes and be still here before our Father who's in heaven, the ruler of all. Father, we thank you this morning that you are on your throne, that you rule from heaven above, that though it seems that this world is in turmoil, not just our nation, but nations across the planet with growing violence and lawlessness and wickedness is expressed in a false morality. Thank you that you said these days would come, that you told us not to fear. You told us that when we would see these things happen, to look up because our redemption draws near. So help us until the day Jesus takes us, either by death or by rapture, that we would be faithful stewards of the gospel that he has given to us. It's our treasure. It's our stewardship. So help us even this week to share it with someone who is in eternal need. And our Father, we thank you that we can fill our hearts and our minds with you this morning as we worship you in song and through your word. You told us to worship in spirit and in truth. And so, Lord Jesus, you said that we are to be sanctified in the truth that your word is truth. And so as we open the Bible, open our hearts, give us eyes to see. Spirit of God, thank you for your teaching ministry that you are the one who inspired every single word and that you are the one who illumines it. And so we come with a deep sense of dependency today upon you to help us not just to see what you have given us, but to obey it. Our Father, we love you. We thank you that you loved us so much that you proved and demonstrated your love that you gave Christ Jesus for us. May we acknowledge in this new week that we are not our own, that we've been bought at a great price. May we live for your glory and honor alone. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your Bibles with you this morning and turn to the book of 2 Kings. If you're brand new to the Bible, maybe you're live streaming, find the Psalms. It's about dead center. Scan to the left in between 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Chronicles. You will come to 1 and 2 Kings. Today we are in 2 Kings chapter 2. Now, if you're joining us for the first time, you'll be interested to know that we've been in a series on the life and times of Elijah the prophet. He's a prophet who lived in very difficult days, much like our own. And there are many great lessons that we can learn from him. This is the ninth of 10 messages that I've been planning to give, God willing. And if you're tuning in for the first time, you might want to download the Search the Scriptures app at the App Store or go to our website, searchthescriptures.org, and listen to the previous nine messages. Now, we began studying this man's life in 1 Kings chapter 17, and without notice or introduction, he suddenly appears in the pages of Scripture. And we will see him just as fast disappear today, and God will take him up into the heavens. But between his entrance and his exit is a man who left an indelible mark on his generation. And he lived in a wicked and a corrupt time. Moses was the first man, and for a short time, Joshua to do miracles. And hundreds and hundreds of years went by, and no one did a miracle in Israel until Elijah and Elisha come on the scene. And the next time frame will be when Christ comes on the scene with his apostles, and the next time frame after that is still in the future. Now, God has done miracles, but he's only done them through individuals, the great ganglions of history. And this is one of those critical junctions because this is a time of great apostasy. 
2 Kings chapter 2 is very, very important. We're not going to read the entire passage, but I hope you have found it by now. We want to begin by reading the first 11 verses. Follow along in the Bible. And it came about when the Lord was about to take up Elijah by a whirlwind to heaven that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Then the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he said, yes, I know, be still. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho approached Elisha and said to him, do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he answered, yes, I know, be still. Then Elisha said to him, please stay here for the Lord has sent me to Jordan, to the Jordan. And he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Now, 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood opposite them at a distance while the two of them stood by the Jordan. Elijah took his mantle and folded it together and struck the waters and they were divided here and there so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. He said, you have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. As they were going along and talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. Now, if you want to jot down some notes, there's an outline for those of you who are live streaming that you can print out. You can see the topic this morning is Elijah's departure. And there are three major truths that are recorded in this portion of Scripture that I want us to get. The first concerns the fact that Elijah's departure is foretold. I want you to see that Elijah's departure is foretold. Just to set the stage for this section of Scripture, you will remember that Elijah's battle, humanly speaking, involved King Ahab and his wicked wife, Jezebel. This couple had brought tremendous misery and heartache and grief to the people of Israel because they had brought into Israel a worship of a false god. However, things change when you come to 2 Kings chapter 1. There we discovered that King Ahab, just as prophesied, had died. And so if you were here last time, we saw that 2 Kings 1 actually began on a very positive note. Unless you think that is some nasty sentiment, then you have forgotten the fact that Ahab was a wicked man, that he brought Baal worship into the kingdom of Israel. And when a nation turns from God and they open the door to evil, all kinds of blatant injustices will come across that nation. And we saw one expression of that as the people participated with Ahab in stealing and in murdering Naboth and taking his vineyard. The king, the queen, the false witnesses, and all the people who lifted up a stone 
took part in this innocent man's murder. And just as predicted, God justly takes his life and he dies and his eldest son, Ahaziah, comes to the throne. And we studied that he is a classic scenario of like father, like son. There's a change in rulers, but there's not a change in leadership style. So describing Ahaziah in 1 Kings 21, 52, we read, he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. You remember Jeroboam? He's the first king in the northern kingdom who set up two false centers of worship in Dan and Bethel. He walked in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. And so with Ahab dead, Jezebel, who introduced this child sacrifice into the nation and the worship of the God of Baal, continues to minister through her son, the king. That brought us to 2 Kings 1, where King Ahaziah makes a disastrous resolution that costs him his own life. If you remember, the chapter opens with him falling through the lattice, and he makes a very foolish decision, and God, just as he said, took his life. That brings us to our chapter this morning, 2 Kings chapter 2. And as we step into this chapter, it's obvious that Elijah the prophet is getting ready to go home. All the prophets know it. Elijah knows it. Elisha, his protege, knows it. And of course, if you remember Elisha, the first time we met him was in 1 Kings chapter 19, when we studied that discipleship relationship, where his mantle, so to speak, was placed on his shoulders as a sign, as a symbol, that when he was gone, he would take the mantle, that he would become the one who would take his place. Now, if you put the chronology together carefully, I mean, you read 1 Kings 19, you read 2 Kings 2, these two chapters where these two are together, and it seems like it's very quick, but God gave us the kings of Israel who was ruling at one time. So there's a minimum of somewhere between eight and 10 years from the time that uh, he initially confronts King Ahab on top of Mount Carmel to the time he confronts him over the theft and murder of Naboth. When Ahab dies, the Bible tells us that his son reigned just two years. So what I'm wanting you to see, and this is critical to understanding the text today, is that these guys were in a discipleship relationship for a minimum of a decade. And so now we're at the end of this prophet's life, and it's felt like a whirlwind from the time he steps onto the pages of Scripture as he announces the drought to King Ahab that it will not rain for three and a half years. As he goes to the dry brook, as he watches it dry up, it was there, of course, that God miraculously provided for him. And then the book, brook dried up, and he went to a widow's home. And once again, we saw the miracle of the jar and the jug and even the raising of the widow's son. And God was preparing him for that incredible encounter with the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the Asherah up there on top of Mount Carmel. Of course, uh, after that's all over, he fled to Bathsheba, and now he is about to be brought up into a whirlwind. Now, that his life is about to end is plain from verse 1. I mean, all these prophets know it. In each of the places he goes, all the prophets know it, that he's going to be taken that day. He's in the final days 
in the final day, in the final hours of his life. This is it. This is his last day on earth. What if this were your last day on earth and you knew it? How would you live it? Well, this man is a great example on how we should live our life right to the very end. How we, because one of these days, God is going to take us either by death or by rapture, but one of these days, we're going to be suddenly gone. So how are we to invest our life? There's some timeless lessons here that you do not want to miss as we discuss here the departure of Elijah. Notice how his departure has been foretold starting here in verse 1. And it came about when the Lord, you see the word Lord there, it's all capitals. It's just the word Yahweh. And so we translate that word Y-H-W-H, the Lord. Now, if a Jew came to this in the Hebrew text, they would say Adonai. Because the four consonants, Y-H-W-H, can be vocalized in one of two ways, either Yahovah or Yahweh. And because a Jew so respects the name of God and does not even want to pronounce his name in vain, when they come to this word, they will say Adonai. In either case, it came about when Yahweh or the Lord was about to take up Elijah by a whirlwind to heaven that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. So this is a common knowledge. The sons of the prophets knew that this was a day he was going to be taken. According to verse 3, Elisha knows that it will happen. According to verse 5, if you look down in your text, again, the sons of the prophet in this other city, they know it's going to happen. In verse 9, Elijah affirms it's going to happen. How did they all know? Because God had said it. God had given it by divine revelation. God had given a prophecy to Elijah, to Elisha, and to all these three schools of prophets. Now, remember, there was a time in human history when God spoke in many portions and in many ways before the canon of Scripture was completed. And as we studied in the Revelation, God is not giving new revelation today. And anyone, whether it's a Joseph Smith or a Beth Moore who has a text message from heaven or Sarah Young with her book, Jesus Calling, and they, and they write down these first-person sayings that God had given them, that's very, very dangerous. That's what the cults do. Christians should never do that. But this was a time when God gave direct revelation. Even in the early church, he did this for a portion of time. But when the canon of Scripture was completed, that all stopped. But what I want you to see is they know it. They know it by prophecy. And so that's very simple. The first point, Elijah's departure is foretold. Second, I want us to think about Elijah's departure as it is unfolded. Let's think about how Elijah's departure is unfolded. So Elijah and Elisha leave together from Gilgal. Notice what we're told here in verse 2. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Now it's interesting as you read this section that they start out at Gilgal, then they travel to Bethel, then they will travel to Jericho, and then they will finally go to the Jordan River where they will cross over to the other side. And just like here in verse 2, each time Elisha sets out, Elisha is ordered to stay behind. And each time, Elisha refuses. He says, no, I don't want to leave you. 
Now, these three repeat experiences raise some important questions. Why does Elijah need to go to these places on this the last day on earth before he departs? What's the significance of these particular places? There are many cities and villages throughout Israel. Why these three? And why does God place this in the record of Scripture for you to read? Remember, all Scripture is given by divine inspiration. These things, Paul said, were written for us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So this is not simply what God has said. This is what God is saying. And why does Elijah seem to be trying to get rid of Elisha so that he can go on alone? And why does Elisha refuse his master and insist on staying with him? We need to answer these questions because they're very, very important. Now, Elijah does not randomly choose the places. It is clear that God directed him from what we read in the text itself to each and every place. And the first stop that he makes is Bethel. Now, Bethel was a very special place for the Jewish people because if you remember at Bethel, it was there that the patriarch Jacob was converted. He met the Lord in a dream. And he saw this ladder that came down from heaven and touched the earth. Hold your finger here. Don't lose it. And turn to the book of Genesis. Go to Genesis chapter 28. I know many of you are new to the Bible. And when I mention Bethel, you just kind of go blank. And some of us, it's so long that we've read it. It would be good for us to refresh our minds this morning. I hope you bring a Bible with you. As dads, you should show your family that the Word of God is important, that you have a Bible on your lap. You want to display that to your children. Bethel is a very, very special place. And here in Genesis, the Jews call this book Barashit. We get the term Genesis from the Septuagint, the Greek translation. But they call this the book of Bereshit, and it means in the beginning. The very first word in the Bible is Bereshit, in the beginning. And this is the book of beginnings. And God gives in kernel form in the book of Genesis what he's going to unfold throughout the word of God. And as you read Genesis 28, you see the evidence that this man has changed. If we were to put this in New Testament terminology, we would say that he was born again. When you're born again, when you come into a relationship with God, as Jacob did on this day, your life changes. Listen, the change is not the cause of a relationship, it's the fruit. He's dealing here not with the root of a relationship, but with the fruit of the relationship. So notice what Moses records for us here in Genesis 28. Look at verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Now, here's a photo of Bethel. You know, some places you go to in Israel, and you say, well, maybe it happened here or it happened somewhere. There's only one place. This is the only Bethel where this could have happened with Jacob. It's a very dry place, very desolate place, very rocky place. And if you look way at the top of that hill, so to speak, there's a little dome, and that is an old crusader church, so to speak. Uh, I went there the last time I went to Israel. I arrived a little bit early. I wanted to go to this place, and it's kind of out of the way, and you don't want to take a crowd there because you miss five sets to go to this site. And so here's another picture of it, but it's a little bit closer towards that dome, that crusader church. But what I want you to see is that this was a rocky place. This was a dry place. And before this dream, 
Verse 11 indicates that Jacob had arrived at Bethel as the sun was going down that night. And he was tired, and so he wanted to lay his head down. Now, I'm a pillow man. I have to have a pillow when I go to sleep. And he was just like me, and there was no pillows around, so he found a rock. And old pillow head made a rock for a pillow, if you remember. But so far as Jacob knew, God was 10,000 miles from that place. But then he had this dream, and notice what he concludes. Surely... The Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Under the new covenant, we'd say, the Spirit bore witness with my spirit that I have become a child of God. And when that happens to you, there's a new reverence for the living God, a new awe for God. So verse 17 says, he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So he's enraptured by the awesomeness of God, and he is conscious of the Lord in a way that he had never known before. And when you get new life, when you come into a relationship with God where you have a new birth, there's a new awe, there's a new reference, a new reverence. Look, some people, they know facts about God, and so they think that means they know God. Most Americans, at least 72%, it's dropping rapidly But at last count, Pew Research said 72% of Americans say they are born-again Christians or Christians of one kind or another. Uh, We're in South Carolina. It's approximately 90%. Look, I doubt seriously that if Jesus came from heaven today to catch up the church, that 72% of America would be brought up in the rapture. Look, when you are saved, you become a new person. There's a new reverence. There's a new awe for God. To put it in the words of the Apostle Paul, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. He's a new creation. The old things have passed away and everything has become new. I'm telling you, there's a day of shock that's in front of us where multitudes of millions who think they are saved will hear from the Lord, I never knew you depart from me. And so God, the Holy Spirit, puts a new desire. He puts a new yearning. Because when you're born from above, there's a new walk, there's a new talk. Listen now to Genesis 28 and verse 18. So Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on it. He turned his pillow into a pillar, into a memorial to God. And the text says he poured oil on it, he consecrated it, he set it apart to the Lord because he's so grateful for what God had done through this dream. And so Moses records for us here in verse 19, he called the name of that place Bethel, which means, of course, house of God, Bethel, house of God. However, previously the name of the city had been Luz. Luz is the Hebrew word for separation, and so he doesn't want to call it that anymore. In essence, this is his open public profession of faith. And so when Jacob arrives there, it's called Luz. It's a a place of separation. It's a desolate place. But now there's new life, and so he wants to call it the house of God. And listen, when you're born again, the Bible teaches that you will be willing to publicly identify with the living God. And that's what this man is doing on this particular day. His life is so wondrously changed, it not only affects his talk, it affects his walk. Look at verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take 
and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I will return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. Now, please understand that this is not Jacob striking a bargain with God, because in Genesis 28 and verse 15, God had promised all these things to him, and he knew, like we know, that it is impossible for God to lie. As Moses writes, God is not like a man that he would ever lie. As Paul writes, God cannot lie. But understand that this word in Hebrew, if, is much like the same word that's used in the temptation in Matthew 4.4, where Satan said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. Now, Satan knew that he was the son of God, and so that's why he tempted in in this way. He wouldn't tempt you. Hey, command these rocks to become bread because you can't do it. (laughs) But he knew Jesus could do it. It's a way that you express emphasis, meaning since you are the son of God. And so Jacob is saying here, God, if you'll be with me and keep me and provide for me and allow me to return safely, since you are going to do all these things as you promised, I want to respond to your amazing grace. Not only is it a new morning, this is a new man. He has changed. He has radically changed. This place is no longer called Luz. This place is Bethel. There's a stairway to the Father from this place. He's converted. Verse 22, and by the way, I hope you know Jesus uses this text in the New Testament. I have a whole sermon on it. Verse 22, this stone, which I have set up as a pillar, will be God's house, and all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Look, his talk has changed and his walk has changed. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. By the way, this is the second time that tithing is recorded in all of the Scripture. The first time, of course, was with Abraham, where he gave a tenth of all that he had to Melchizedek. This was ever before God had codified it in Moses, in the Torah. He hadn't written it yet. How did they know to give a tenth? Because God had revealed it to them. And he was in obedience to God because his heart was changed. Now, don't misunderstand the text. Jacob is not getting close to God by giving. But because he got close to God, because he was changed, he wants to, out of gratitude, give to the Lord. I mean, think about this man. If you've studied his life, what has been his motto up until Genesis 28? His motto has been to get. He was the great getter. And if you know Genesis, then you know that he has one passion in life, and it is to get. But something happened to him in this place. And so he went from a spirit of getting to a spirit of giving, just like Zacchaeus in the New Testament when he was changed. Now, back here to 2 Kings 2. You didn't lose it, did you? 2 Kings chapter 2. Go back to 2 Kings 2. The first place that Elisha brings Elisha to is Bethel, and it's not by accident. Uh, there's a school of prophets here, a prophet's guild. The son of the prophets are located here. And he brings them to this place, and this is a significant place. This would be like bringing a, someone to our Statue of Liberty today. These places aren't just drawn out of nowhere. These are hallowed places because they, are, they mark great turning points in Israel's history. Look again at 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 2. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, please. For the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. 
So they went down to Bethel. Bethel, it, it signifies the place of the altar, the place of change, where he goes from head knowledge to a heart knowledge in the living God. And if he were ever to be as successful as a prophet, he needed to have a heart knowledge. Now, no doubt for Elijah, Bethel was a place to reflect, too, upon all the altars he had built during his life. And he had remembered how he had lived in dependence upon the living God, just as Elisha would need to do. And so here at Bethel, Elijah the prophet says to Elisha the second time, notice, stay here, please. For the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. He is testing this man's devotion. He wants to see how long and how far he will follow him. He knows he's going to soon depart. He says, stay here, please. But Elisha wants to stay as close as possible to his mentor, to his master. Look at verse 3. Then the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel, came out to Elisha and said to him, do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he said, yes, I know, be still. Elisha once again is told that this is the day that the Lord would take his master, Elijah, away from him. And his response to these prophets is, be still. Now, perhaps they thought they knew something that nobody else knew, which tends to be the attitude among students with their teachers sometimes. In either case, God revealed to them by direct revelation that this was the day that Elijah was going to depart and be taken away from him. Now, in both cities, Elisha politely responds. He says, be quiet in essence. Don't talk to me about it. It's too painful for him. Again, remember, their relationship together is only covered in two chapters, but because of the chronology that God gives us, it covers a period of 10 years. They had become, no doubt, close friends in the Lord. And when you have a brother in the Lord, there's just a kinship that's hard to explain. Verse 4, Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. Now, again, for the people of Israel, Jericho is another important spot of great historical significance. It would be much like our Independence Hall. It represented the power of God, the victory of God, and it was the entrance into the land of promise. This was the place where Israel had to walk by faith. It was the first major conquest they had to believe God for to be able to enter into the promised land. Now, remember, God had promised a land that would flow with milk and honey. But between that magnificent land and them was this great and fortified city of Jericho. And archaeology reveals that this is one of the oldest cities ever uncovered. It was a strong city. It was a powerful city. It seemed impregnable, unconquerable. It seemed unbeatable. And this city is the obstacle. It's the fortress between them and all that God had promised the nation of Israel. Listen, when God needs a job done, especially a gigantic job, he looks for a man, he looks for a woman, a boy, a girl, a teenager of faith, and that's the one who always gets the contract. 
Now, don't lose your place here, but turn back to the left to the book of Joshua chapter 5. That's right after the Torah, the Pentateuch, Penta 5, Tukos, law, five books of the law. The Jews call it the Torah, or sometimes they just call it Moses. The next book right after Moses The five books is Joshua. Go to Joshua chapter 5. Now, if you remember, the book of Deuteronomy closes with Moses' death, with the torch of leadership moving from Moses to Joshua. And so now they're ready to capture the land, but the entrance to the land is blocked by this pagan city of Jericho. And so God needs to do something in the heart of Joshua that he might trust him for the walls to crumble. And what transpires before the walls crumble in many ways is more important than the walls crumbling themselves. Look, if you will, it sounds like you found it. Joshua chapter five, starting now in verse 13. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing opposite him with the sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, no, rather, I indeed come now as captain of the hosts of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face and bowed down and said to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, Joshua is a general. He had been surveying the problem. And as he's surveying the problem, he encounters this man with a drawn sword. And he asks him the question, are you for us or against us? Are you friend or are you foe? Are you for them or for us? The man just answers no, a rather frustrating answer. He doesn't say, I'm with you. He doesn't say, I'm against you. He just says no. And by that, he's saying, I'm not for you. I'm not against them. I am the captain of the Lord's of hosts. I'm not here to take sides. I am here to take over. And if you've taken my course on angelology, then you know that this man that Joshua met, who is dubbed here the angel of the Lord, is the same person that Moses met at the burning bush. Joshua, like Moses, do not meet an ordinary angel, but the angel of Yahweh. And as you let Scripture interpret Scripture, and I walk through that whole thing in that course, and it's online if it's of interest to you in our Institute of Biblical Studies, that in Scripture interpret Scripture, we discover that one of the members of the Godhead would at times under the Old Testament era appear as the angel of the Lord. And you learn it was the second member of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus himself. Ever before Jesus incarnated himself at Bethlehem, he came as the angel of the Lord. And that's why after Bethlehem, you never see the angel of the Lord again in Scripture. And so when Joshua comes to grips with the reality of the person that's before him, he takes off his sandals and he worships the Lord. Listen, no angel would have ever allowed himself to have been worshiped unless this angel is no ordinary angel, and indeed, it's God himself. And so the second member of the Trinity, he serves here as the commander-in-chief because the Father has given him the armies of heaven, as we studied in the Revelation. And so Joshua simply surrenders himself, and he worships the Lord. 
He takes off his sandals. He falls prostrate in the dust because he knows he's in the presence of God Almighty. Listen, Joshua really needed to worship God. He needed to worship the Lord and able to, to be able to believe and embrace the battle plan that he had. And it's often in worship that God gives you clear thought. It's important that when you come here, you come to worship. It's important during the week that you spend time with God in worship. He needed to fill his mind with the presence of God, and that's what he is doing. And some of us, we have so filled our mind with the problems of the day that that's what consumes us. And we can't really hear God speak from his word. There is a principle in Scripture, you glance at your problems, but you gaze at the Lord. And I have found the more that I worship the Lord, both physically and mentally, I'm able to hear from the Bible in a clearer way. Now, listen, the angel of the Lord simply says, I'm not here to take sides. I'm here to take over. It's not a matter of getting God on your side. It's a matter of you getting on God's side. And when that happens, you're going to grow in your faith. Now, look at chapter 6 and verse 1. Chapter 6 and verse 1. And the grammatical construction in my Hebrew Bible is such that it is an event that quickly follows this. The chapter and verse divisions are artificial. But this is all part of the same very encounter. Look at the parenthetical note that the chapter opens with in verse 1. Now, Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. So the Jericonians, they were ready for war. They were exercising top security. No one in, no one out of the city. Further, we're told in verse 2, the Lord said to Joshua, see, I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. You shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. Also, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. They were going to march around the city once a day for six days, and then seven times on the seventh day for a total of 13 times. Look at verse 5. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, the shafar, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up every man straight ahead. Here was God's plan for victory given to a general, to a military man. Now, God does not tell him to dig trenches. God does not tell him to build battering rams. God does not tell him to get ladders and scale the walls. He doesn't tell him to tunnel underneath the walls. They couldn't batter down the walls. They had to believe the walls down. That was God's plan. And I can hear maybe some of the rank and file, maybe day five, Joshua, what are we doing? This is the fifth day we've been around. Nothing's happening. And he would say, we're just waiting on God. This is only day five, guys. We have to wait till day seven, and on day seven, we're going to march around seven days. The captain of the Lord of hosts has given me this word. Look, headquarters is not in this tent, it's in heaven. 
listen, I'm just a buck private. I'm serving the Lord God of hosts. This is his plan. You see, faith, even though it may not understand it, believes it. I don't understand everything I may do, but if God said it, then that I am to believe it and I am to respond to it. Let me tell you that the Bible, first and foremost, is a book to be believed, then it is to be obeyed. You believe whether or not you will take God in his word at face value. And the people of this world will not always understand why you do what you do. You're here on Sunday. Some of your neighbors are out on the river, they're at the beach, they're doing something else, and they don't know why every week you get up to worship God. They laugh at you for taking the Lord's day seriously. They scoff at you for the different set of standards that you follow for raising your children. All you know is that you have a truth from the word of God and you may not understand it, but you believe it and therefore you obey it. I mean, when I started tithing, I was thinking about it this week over 40 years ago, I didn't understand it. That God said I could do more with nine tenths than I could with 10 tenths. But he said it, and by the way, the church believed that until 1920. This idea that tithing has no application for today is recent in the history of the church. And again, tithing is done ever before God codified it in the law. I didn't understand it, but I believed it, and I was committed to obeying it. Listen, the world may laugh at you. They may scoff at you. But God will have the last laugh. Seems like the world is falling apart, but God is on his throne. What we are witnessing is exactly what he prophesied. So faith waits on God. It trusts God. It obeys God. Now look, notice verse 14. Thus the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did so for six days. Verse 15. Then on the seventh day, they rose early at the dawning of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. Only on that day, they marched around the city seven times. Now, God was teaching them a great lesson. He was teaching them the lessons of patience. Suppose on the third day, they said, we've had enough. Suppose on the seventh day, after five times, they said, I'm whooped. We're not doing this again the walls would not have crumbled. God had given a clear word, and they were to believe that word in faith. And there are some of you who are listening to me today, and you've lost patience, and you're ready to quit, and you need to trust God that he is in control. Look at verse 16. At the seventh time, when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, For the Lord, encircle the next two words, has given. For the Lord has given you the city. Right before the walls falls, he says, shout. Why? Because the Lord has given you the city. Not the Lord might give you the city, or even that the Lord shall in the future give you the city, but the Lord has given you the city. Now, the city had not yet fallen, but Joshua claimed it as theirs because he knew in the mind and heart of God it was promised and it was as good as conquered. 
Now remember, the Lord had already told them, told him in Joshua 6 and verse 5, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up every man straight ahead. He knew the word of God. He had a promise from God, and so he speaks a word of faith. Where did he get this faith? The same place you'll get it. Not through some ecstatic experience, not through some liver quiver experience. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. He did not just decide that he wanted the walls of Jericho to fall down so he would believe God for it. Faith is not dreaming something up on your own. It's going to the Holy Scripture, finding out what God says, and you believe it because God promised it. Now, you must believe God for something that is already so because he has said it in his word and he has promised, I have given you the city. And so he responds in faith. Now, God first must speak. Now, he may illuminate to your heart. Don't say, well, God gave me a revelation. He's never given you a revelation. There's no new revelation. Now, he might give you an illumination. He might take what he has inspired and illuminate to your heart where you understand it, and he shows you how to apply it. When I went into the ministry some 45 years ago, the issue that was facing the church was the inerrancy of the Bible. Is the Bible without error? That's not the issue facing the evangelical church today. The evangelical church is facing the issue, is the Scripture sufficient? And yes, it is sufficient. We don't need a Beth Moore, Sarah Young kind of text message, direct revelation from God, because this is it. This book is sufficient. Now, understand, Elijah, go back to 2 Kings. He is not randomly walking around, oh, let's go to this place or go to that place. He is going to these specific places, and there's a reason why there's a prophetic guild in each of these places. He could look back over his own life and recall the victories of faith with the raven there at the brook and the jug and the jar and the resuscitated child along with the Mount Carmel experience, all done in faith. And Jericho would be a great place to have a school of prophets and a great place to bring his mentor because this is a place where they had to walk by faith. Now look at 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 4. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. Now they meet another school of prophets. Notice verse 5. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho approached Elisha and said, do you know that the Lord will take your master from over you today? The prophet's response to Elisha seems rather intellectual, cerebral, but for Elisha, this is his friend. This is his mentor. This is his brother in the Lord. This is a painful time. And by the way, the mark of a true student of Scripture is a burning heart, not a big head. Knowledge in and of itself, Paul says, just puffs you up. We need, a, we need Emmaus Road disciples where when they hear Jesus open the scriptures, they said, were not our hearts burning from within as he was speaking to us on the road, explaining the scriptures to us? And so they say to Elisha here in verse five, do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he answered, yes, I know 
Be still. Again, don't talk to me about it. Again, the implication, it's too painful for me to even think about. So here's this man who's been a prophet in training, and he's received his theological education from a man who had a passionate heart for God. That's a sad thing in many seminaries of the world. Men who have head knowledge but no passion for God. I had some professors like that in my own seminary, and some of them went down the tube, and they don't even walk with Christ today. Now, you'd expect this mature disciple of Elijah to respond, yes, I know Elijah is going to be taken away today. I know he's headed to paradise. Praise the Lord. But that's not what he says. Please notice verses 6 and 7. Then Elijah said to him, please stay here. There's the third time. Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. So he continued to test the devotion of Elisha. And Elisha continues to stick with him. He anticipates the departure. He doesn't want to leave him. He faithfully follows him throughout the whole day. He does not want to leave his master. So the two of them went on. Now look at verse 7. Now 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood opposite them at a distance while the two of them stood by the Jordan. Now why the Jordan River? Why bring Elisha to this spot? And why would there be another seminary of prophets here? Well, again, for Israel, the Jordan River marked the end of a 40-year wilderness experience. It pictured, in essence, death to the old life and a brand new life as they went into the land of promise. And so Elisha is literally saying, again, be quiet, hush. I don't want to hear what you have to say. And so they go to the Jordan. Now, let me give you a picture here of the Jordan River. This is actually the place where the crossing took place. You say, that doesn't look that impressive. We go here and we baptize. There was another place for years and years we would baptize people in the Jordan until uh, Israel and the nation of Jordan the people standing on this side on the platform are in Israel, where those trees are on the other side of the river. That's the country of Jordan. You say, it doesn't look that big a river to me. It doesn't look that impressive to me. But understand that this was before the Jordan River started being drained dry for irrigation and regulated with water locks at its source there as it came from Mount Hermon into the Sea of Galilee, and then it fed the Jordan River. Here's a more recent photo. We saw a little more water on this occasion. It's a little bit wider, and you can see even a little white water if you look carefully. It was a raging river during the flood season. Are they crossing the Jordan River when they go into the promised land during flood season? Yes, they are. How do we know? Because as soon as they get to the other side, they celebrate Passover. This is the rainy season. This is the height of it. Here's a picture of a photo taken in 1935 before they regulated it much. You can look at pictures 75 years ago, and you will see at flood stage, the river was anywhere from 100 yards to one mile wide. So describing their crossing in Joshua chapter 3, listen to these words. So when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people, 
And when those who carried the ark came into the Jordan and the feet of the priests carrying the ark were dipped in the edge of the water for the Jordan overflows, all its banks, all the days of harvest, the waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap. Then they made a memorial, the Bible says, 12 stones in the middle and on the outside. And every time their kids would go by, hey, dad, what do those 12 stones mean? God would say, that's the day God stopped the waters of the Jordan River, and we left into the promised land. And so the Bible records in Joshua chapter 4 and then in verse 18, it came about when the priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord had come up from the middle of the Jordan and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up to the dry ground, that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and went over all its banks as before. So this is where the pilgrims, so to speak, died because they crossed the Jordan and they were no longer pilgrims. They had arrived at home. And so Jordan was the place when after Moses dies that Joshua takes the leadership, he conquers Jericho, they cross the Jordan River. It's a magnificent thing to watch. And so Elijah brought Elisha to this place because it was a place of miraculous deliverance. It was a place where God brought them, in essence, into a new land. It was a place of transition. It's the place where he is going to be captured up into glory. And by the way, this is the same place because the New Testament identifies it. The Jordan River is obviously a long river, but this is the place where John the Baptist baptized Jesus. This is the same place in this next picture that we saw earlier. Uh, the Bible records that Jesus was baptized across from Jericho near Bethany. Good of God to send a dove that day. Pretty cool. In either case, Jesus was baptized here. What I'm wanting you to see is that these are no random places. God Almighty is leading his prophet to these three different seminaries where the sons of the prophets are, and each of these three places have great significance in Israel's history. And in some respects, they become a picture of the Christian life. First, you have to have a Bethel. Have you been born again? Unless you're born again, you will never see the inside of heaven. And if you don't know you're born again, it typically means you're not. I mean, you can't know it, and not, you can't have it and not know it, trust me. You should come to meet the pastor on Thursday night. If you're live streaming, you should live stream 7 p.m. this Thursday. But we also need to have a Jericho kinds of experiences where we walk by faith every single day, believing God. That means you're feeding on his word. Why? Because we wage war not against flesh and blood. There are spiritual battles that we face in the Christian life. And John says, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. But someday, maybe sooner than we realize... We'll have a Jordan River kind of experience, and we'll cross over to the next side, to that place that God has prepared for us. We will come to the end of our journey. Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad place to be. That's a doorway into the very presence and the blessings of God himself so God takes us through justification, through sanctification, and someday as we cross over our Jordan into glorification. 
So I want you to see that when Elijah takes Elisha to Bethel, to Jericho, to the Jordan, these were great places in Israel's history, and each place had a message in and of itself. Now, this map helps us to see where they, they did this all in one day, remember. They were in Gilgal, as you can see here on the map, and they go from there to Bethel. That's eight miles. Then they go from Bethel to Jericho. That's another 15 miles. And then they go from Jericho to the Jordan River. That's another five miles. They went 28 miles that day. Now, these guys were in shape. These weren't wimpy men. Now, I know the speed walkers in the Olympics can walk a 40-mile race at eight miles an hour. But this is no lightweight territory they're going through. It's hot, it's rocky, and they're in good shape. This man took care of himself. It's one thing if you lose your health because we live in a fallen world. It's quite another thing to throw it away. And so, you know, it's at the end of the day. They stopped at three schools. They had discussions that aren't recorded, aren't written all about. And so, you know, the setting had to be beautiful. You know, when you light the fireworks, you don't do it in the daytime. You wait until it gets dark, and dusk is coming, and there's going to be a magnificent scene as he sees these chariots of fire. By the way, if this were your last day on earth, and you knew it, how would you spend it? I'm convinced you wouldn't work overtime at the office saying, I've got one last assignment I need to do for my boss. I doubt you'd paint the living room or the dining room, or figure out where you're going to put your next investment in the stock market, Elijah spent his last day in the presence of Elisha, not moaning and groaning. They visited two, three schools, three yeshivas, three schools of prophets. And he probably said, farewell, my dear friends. You know I'm leaving today. Walk by faith. Believe God. No matter how dark it gets, you trust God. I love this guy. He hasn't retired from the ministry. He's not sitting on a bench somewhere. He is serving until the last day God takes him. Now here in 2 Kings 2, look again in verse 7. Now 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood opposite them at a distance while the two of them stood by the Jordan. Notice what he does in front of all the prophets watching. Elijah took his mantle and folded it together and struck the waters, and they were divided here and there so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. Elijah walks in the steps of Moses and Joshua, men whom God used to miraculously part waters. Moses, of course, the Red Sea. Joshua, the Jordan River. And now a second time, the Jordan River. Is, is split. Verse 9, when they had crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. It's obvious. Time is fleeting. It's the end of the day before Elijah is to depart. And he knows that Elisha just has a bulldog tenacity. He's not going anywhere. So he asked his servant if there was one final gesture that he could honor. And Elisha said, please, let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. Now, those who carelessly read this text of Scripture think that this is some selfishly ambitious request that he makes, and I, it's sadly preached that way on occasion. 
But let me say parenthetically, if you study the lives of these prophets, you know that's not true. Now, it is true. Some think, well, the double portion he asked for was twice the power. It is true, and I was going to do it in the sermon, but it would mean another 20 minutes, and I was going to enumerate the 14 miracles that Elijah did. And yes, Elisha did 28 miraculous kinds of things, but that's not what he's asking for. This is a humble man. This is not some egotistical request. Do you remember after Elijah was taken up into heaven in the whirlwind? We studied it a few weeks back. Jehoshaphat is the king of Israel, and he asks a question. It's recorded in the next chapter, 2 Kings 3.11. Let me read it to you. Is there not a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? And one of the king of Israel's servants answered and said, now listen carefully to his answer because the description of Elisha the prophet is very telling of the kind of person he is. He said, Elisha the son of Shaphat is here who used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. That's significant because pouring water on the hands of Elijah was the role of a humble servant. Remember, they kept their hands ceremonial clean as the Orthodox do today. Before every meal, they washed their hands in a certain way. And he went ahead and got the water each time and poured the hands on Elijah. It was the posture and it was the attitude of a servant. And I want to tell you, my friend, unless you have a servant's heart, you will never do anything lasting and holy and eternal for the Lord. Now, please know you will never convince me as some of the commentaries unfold, that this was some self-centered request. It is not. In response to Elijah's question, we're told, and Elisha said, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. You might want to put it in the margin, Deuteronomy 21 and verse 17. He asked for a double portion, and it's translating the words, peshenagim, and it is two words that are recorded in the law of Moses where a father was to give his firstborn a double portion. In other words, the firstborn son at this time in Israel's history would carry on the family practice, the family property, the family name. And the double portion had nothing to do with favoritism or greed, but it had everything to do with carrying on the name and preserving the land. And here we are some 3,000 years later, and not by accident, but by providence. Israel is the only country in the world that bears the same name, speaks the same language, practices the same faith, and inhabits the same piece of property as it did 3,000 years ago. And while a majority of the world hates Israel, and yes, while there's coming a time when all the nations of the world, yes, even our own country, as we studied in the Revelation, will go against Israel. God's not done with Israel. God used the Jew to bring about the first coming, and he will use the Jew to bring about the second coming. But this idea of a double portion is not to ask for twice as much a display as Elijah displayed, but to ask to be the firstborn successor of the ministry. Now, understand, he had already been promised in 1 Kings 19, 19. We studied it. The mantle fell on him. But he knew it was impossible for him to be the kind of man that Elijah the prophet was unless God gave him a double portion. It's like saying, he's twice the guy I am. God, give me a double portion. 
that I might carry out the life and ministry as the spiritual firstborn of this prophet. This is not an ambitious man. This is a humble saint. He says, God, I want to speak, and I want to walk, and I want to preach in a way that is worthy of my master, Elijah. Look at the response. Elijah said, verse 10, you have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you, but if not, it shall not be so. So he places the responsibility for this request to be answered, not in his hands, but the Lord's hands. Elijah knows from years spent with Elisha that he has the tenacity to follow him and to honor him and that he's going to stick with him throughout the day. He clearly knows they cannot be separated. So he says, if you see me depart, then you'll know that God has given you the desire of your heart. And so notice verse 11. God has to open his eyes and see, much like we studied a few weeks ago, Elisha's attendant in 2 Kings saw the chariots of fire. He has to see that. Look at verse 11. As they were going along and talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. Now, a few verses later, we're told the other prophets are standing by, and they want to search for Elijah's body. And the reason is, is because while they see the whirlwind, or you could translate the Hebrew, the windstorm, I picture it like a funnel of wind sucking them up off the ground. While they see that visual, they do not see the visual of the chariots of fire and the horses of fire. So look at verses 14 through 18, or 16 through 18 for a moment. They said to him, behold, now there are with your servants 50 strong men. Please let them go and search for your master. Perhaps the Spirit of the Lord has taken them up and cast them on some mountain or into some valley. Had they seen the chariots of fire, they know that would not have happened. And he said, you shall not send. Now, remember, the prophecy had been given to them as stated in verse 3 to the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel, in verse 5 to the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho, and I'm assuming by extension the same was true of the sons of the prophets who were in the Jordan. They all knew what was going to happen this day, and what was revealed was that he would be taken away, but they didn't know in this manner Perhaps they said the Spirit of the Lord has taken him up and cast him on some mountain or into some valley. And he said, you shall not send. But when they urged him, he was ashamed. He said, send. They sent their 450 men and they searched three days but did not find him. They returned to him while he was staying at Jericho. And he said to them, did I not say to you, do not go? Now, they were not in unbelief. They were simply trying to be discerning because they didn't see what Elisha saw. God allowed Elisha for a brief moment to see something. And his mentor said to him, if you see this, you know God has given you your request. Again, verse 11, as they were going along and talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them. 
And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. Now, please notice, he's taken up to heaven in a whirlwind, not in the chariot of the horses of fire. Verse 11 says they were separated, the two. The Hebrew text already said they came between the two of them. So the Bible does not teach that Elijah was carried up, that he got into a chariot of fire, or that he rode horses of fire. Know that the horses and the chariots separated the two, that he was carried up in a whirlwind. Here is a picture of Elijah's departure as it's often rendered in artwork. It's inaccurate because he's not taken into a chariot. He's taken up in a whirlwind. The two separates him. Now, you may, be, and that's why, by the way, it's important that you get your theology from the Bible and not from artwork. Now, you may be asking yourself, was his rapture like the rapture that we're going to have? And the definitive, absolute answer is, no, it was not. And we will see why next time. Now, look at verse 12. Elisha saw it and cried out, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw Elijah no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. This was the fulfillment of a conditional promise that God made through Elijah. Look, if you see me depart, then you know that God has given you your request. And so it's like he's telling him, my father, my father, he wants him to know, I saw it, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen. And so God is going to give him a double portion. And the text says he saw Elijah no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. He's not happy. He's heartbroken because his friend is gone. And as an act of mourning, he tore his pieces and his clothing in two. Verse 13, he also took up the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and returned and stood by the bank of the Jordan from then on, Elisha would take the role of Elijah, took up the mantle, which again, a symbol of authority and power. He had to pick it up. God just didn't drop it in his lap. He had to pick it up. He had to put it on. He had to do what God asked him to do. He took the mantle, verse 14, of Elijah that fell from him and struck the waters and said, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? He knew that the power was not in mantles and fiery chariots and fiery and horses, but in the Lord God of Elijah. And he's really giving God glory in doing that. And when he had struck the waters, they were divided here and there, and Elijah crossed over. Now for the third time in human history, the waters of the Jordan are divided. Clear, definitive evidence to the schools of these prophets that Elisha is the new man. Verse 15, he crosses back over. Now, when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho opposite him saw him, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha, and they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. In other words, he is the appointed heir. He received the double portion. He is the firstborn heir of Elisha. He is now God's ordained mouthpiece. Now, how are we going to apply this? Let me make three applications as we close quickly. Number one, first, we should walk by faith until the end. No matter how long you've walked with God, no matter what you've seen God do, 
through your life and for you, there will never come a day when you cannot stop trusting him. Just because the years of walking with God have brought you closer to heaven does not mean that you stop believing him, where you start coasting. God does not allow us ever to stop trusting him, to walk with him. And until you stand in his presence where you have been made into his image, you are to walk by faith because the Bible says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. What are you trusting God for today that only God can do? Maybe it's to change some rotten disposition. Maybe it's to change a bad habit. Maybe it's an air of rebellion that God wants to change. Maybe there's someone that he wants you to share the gospel with. Maybe there's some place of service that you need to take up. You're to walk by faith. Nothing less will please him because without faith, it's impossible to please him. And as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 14, and without faith, it is sin. For whatever is not from faith is sin. So if we're not walking by faith, we're walking in sin. Second, we should work for the Lord until the end. We should work for the Lord until the end. He's a model for believers to imitate when it comes to being taken by death or by rapture. Elijah doesn't spend the last day of his life on earth sitting around doing nothing. He takes them to three critical, historical, spiritual places of significance, to these three yeshivas where there's schools of prophets, where he wants to speak, no doubt, to these men and remind his own mentor of the significance of each place and as it would relate to his life. He doesn't even say, hey, man, this is our last day on earth. Let's just sit and talk and where they had moaned and groaned together. No, he works until the very instance that God takes them. It's an example for all of us to follow. Third and finally, we should disciple the next generation of believers until the end. As we near the end of our own life, there's always another generation that comes behind us, and we are to teach them about being saved, about God's victory, about living by faith, about loving God's Word and the church and reaching the lost. What kind of legacy are we leaving behind when we leave this earth? And I'm here to tell you this morning that because some people were faithful, you and I are here. We're here because of the faithfulness of the saints that went on before us and gave us the gospel. And our responsibility is to be faithful to the end. As a pastor, I am to disciple people. How am I to do that? God says in his word, through the teaching ministry of a pulpit. The word disciple, mathetes, means a learner. And I am to open the scriptures where there's something that people can learn and be changed by. As a father, I'm to disciple my own children. And they, in turn, are to be encouraged to disciple their, their children. As an older man, we're commanded to teach the younger men and boys how they are to conduct themselves. We are to teach them how to love their wives. We are to teach them how to treat their children. We're to teach them how to work hard. We're to teach them how to pray, to serve, to give, how to be faithful to the words that they make and the promises that they give. 
Your influence is not only here in these walls, but beyond these walls. And the same is true, Titus 2 teaches of older women, teaching the younger women. They need to be taught how to act, how to dress, how to treat their husbands, how to love their children. We have older women who just want to sit around with older women and talk about the Bible, and they've missed it by a million light years. They're to be building into the next generation. And some of you godly ladies are here because someone discipled you when we were a new young family with our firstborn baby, there was a lady by the name of Diana Pledger that came into my wife's life, an older woman who mentored her and showed her the ropes of motherhood and had a profound impact on her and the women in turn that she's influenced. And one of these days, we're going to stand before the Lord, and he's not going to say, well done, thy good and talented service, servant. He's not going to say, well done, thy good and prestigious servant. He's not going to say, well done, thy good and popular servant. Hopefully, he will say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Now, if you've never been saved, you can't apply any of these three applications. You cannot walk by faith until the end, until you take the first step of faith. That is not trusting for God for something today, but something he did 2,000 years ago when he died, was buried, and was raised from the dead. That will initiate the walk of faith. If you've never been saved, you cannot do work for the Lord until the end because you have nothing to offer the Lord until the Spirit of God does it through you, and that can't happen until you're converted. And if you've never been saved, you can't really disciple in the truest sense the next generation, because you cannot take them where you yourself have not been. But you can be saved today if you want to be. Just a couple of weeks ago, we had two brothers sitting in this service. And I did their funerals on Tuesday. Who would have thought one of these days, God's going to take you. He's going to take me either by death or by rapture. And we need to be faithful until the end. Father, I thank you this morning for this great man of God, the lessons that we can learn from his life. Thank you, Spirit of God, for inspiring these texts of Scripture, for us to study, to learn what you would have us to learn. I pray today, Father, for someone listening to me who's really not sure of their destiny. They don't know if this week were their funeral, that heaven is their home. And they don't know because they don't understand that they cannot save themselves. Reveal to them that their sin is an affront to you, that it deserves death, and nothing short of death in an eternal place will please you. But thank you for the Lord Jesus who took our death in our stead, that he as an eternal person in a finite period of time accomplished for us what would take us an eternity to pull off, that you raised him from the dead such that you can say to anyone who will call upon his name in faith to be forgiven and changed, that you will instantly give them the gift of eternal life. Father, help someone today to say, Lord Jesus, save me. And like Jacob of old, who is not ashamed to publicly confess that. I pray for the rest who have already met you, that we would take a hard look at our lives today, 
to take inventory of how we are spending them and investing them. We may have balled it up to this point, but thank you, today is the first day of the rest of our life. From this day forward, we cannot just entertain ourselves to death, but we can invest our lives in things that truly, truly matter. Help us not to be blind to what is taking place in our day. The very things that you wrote and prophesied of, help us to be alert, knowing that he's coming. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.